How's it going, guys? It's going good. Hello and welcome to Cyberdelia. I'm Dave. I'm Mo. I'm Clayton. Yes, today we are joined by our uh, first and very special guest, Clayton. Um, Clayton Winslade. So, uh, Clayton, tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I work with, I used to, I, I work with these guys, or I used to work with them both, and now I only work with one of them. But I've uh, been around tech for maybe a decade came out of like the STEM path that maybe like I came out of the sciences and not computer science. I took a long way to get to tech. That's, that brings us to uh, one of the subjects we were wanting to talk to with you about. Um, so uh, I, w- I was told that you and Mo were having a conversation on the imposter syndrome the other day. Yeah, Clayton, as you're, as you're saying, like, how you joined tech, your head was hanging there. And I was like, what, why are you, you should be proud, dude. <laughs> um <laughs> Okay, I guess we should probably discuss this, but like, what is the imposter syndrome? Did anybody want to look up a definition and want to share their their definition of imposter syndrome? Yeah, um, let me look it up on another laptop here. <laughs> um, so, okay, this is a pretty good definition, actually, right away. Um, imposter syndrome can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. So it's pretty, I mean, it's missing sort of the key, I I guess. It is pretty simple because it is this, the the key idea that you, uh, you feel like you're an imposter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For me, it's like, I feel like a fraud and I'm just waiting for everyone to figure it out and like I'll be exposed and then they'll be all over the tabloid headlines Mo pretending to be a developer for this many years and got away with it um, until people realize, whoa, he's he's not what everyone thinks he is. So what have you been doing that isn't developing that people would find out? <laughs> Were you just like walking dogs that entire time or like? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My entire career at the last organization felt like oh, wait till they find out. It's like I'm just waiting until they realize, oh, they made this huge mistake. You know, like getting that offer, I remember coming in for the interview and it was it was like a Tuesday night. I think it was like 8.30 p.m., something like that. I show up to this office and it's in front of this sketchy building. I'm like, I must be in the wrong place. Go upstairs to the second floor and there's holes in the wall. There's like a panda and armor in the corner. There's <laughs> glasses of or empty glasses on the table and Oban boxes everywhere in a dark room with this guy and his like his feet is up on the table and just he's just kicking it with a laptop <laughs> and the other person hands me a laptop and says okay uh and just they just go it's they no questions about like trying to figure out if i'm a cultural fit or like or trying to give me the soft load or yet it just goes straight to the technical interview it's like we don't have time to waste and it was fun it was like they grilled me hard you know based on the skills and what i was interviewing for and i'm like the entire time trying to be calm and I get through this thing and I get this offer. I'm like, holy, how did I convince them that I know what I'm doing? You know, like <laughs> they have no idea what I'm doing. And I get an offer and I accept. And the entire time I'm there, I'm thinking, oh, you know, like how did they, you know, make this decision on me? And like in a two hour interview and maybe they think that I'm way more than I actually am. You know, maybe they, they expect more of me and I'm not delivering it or, or I've never felt like I was actually 
meeting what I w- the expectation that I think that I was supposed to have for when I first joined, right? Even and leaving, it was like I, I'm so glad to leave because now they, they'll never find out. Except here I am telling you on the internet, that I never felt like I belonged there. I was just faking it, and that people were gonna find out. And yeah, that was that was my story at, at that place. And there were so many smart people. And the more that I heard those people talk, the smaller I felt because I was like. I'm on the same level with these folks. They have no idea. They're in a super different league from me. And uh, I just, I, I couldn't ever feel comfortable. Um, there were moments where you felt good. And it's like, for me, it's like, it comes and goes, you know, like there's moments where like, oh, a few successes, build up some confidence. I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I, I sort of do know what I'm doing. I, I think I am getting better. I think that maybe I am good enough to do this. And then there are moments where I'm like, I'm a complete fraud. Uh, How did I get this job? They're going to let me go. There's so many smarter people that deserve this job. Like, as soon as they realize that I'm out of here and they're going to fill this slot with someone who's like 10 times smarter than me and actually deserves the job that I'm doing here um, because I'm playing a role and not actually that thing that they wanted or thought that I was supposed to be. Hmm. Right? Because it's just like, it's, it's a persistent thing. Like, regardless of how successful you've been mm-hmm. and and how much from the outside people look at look at your your you or your work and they're like yeah 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 well, how how is this how, like how is it possible you feel like an imposter it's persistent right like i think that's the so yeah that's how you that's how it is i mean i have i mean a similar story right like i think i interviewed over the web but uh and i'd been doing qa and i think i found some production problems like I found bugs in my interview, but um, <laughs> unintentional bugs. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and I think it's 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 weird. And and from my end, like I I always chose the path in school, and when I was doing like a, a grad grad school, it's always like I do not want to do a simulation. I do not want to do computational physics. I will want to be in a lab. So I like. I kind of started this job and I spent a lot of time not doing that work very stupidly, but very deliberately. So then you kind of start and then, uh, yeah, you're just not very good at the basic competencies that people think. And it, it's just a, for me, yeah, it's exactly the same. It's just a persistent feeling of like, oh no, at some point they're going to, they've really find out it's all over for me. Right? Like, I almost think it gets worse as the number of years increases. Like for myself, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be at this level now this year. You know, like year one, I'm like, okay, well, I'm new to this. So I guess like I should be better than this, but I'm not going to give myself that much of a hard time because I'm pretty new. After, you know, n number of years, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be this good. And I'm, you know, looking around other people who are that many. I'm like, oh, I I don't know this yet. I haven't done that yet. Um, I'm I'm not, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. You know, if people just look at the number and they're going to think that, uh, I'm at this level and then they're going to realize that I'm not actually at that level. And I'm like, what is that level? Like, is there a level that's associated with the years of, of <laughs> doing this? I don't know. But in my mind, there is. And it's one level per year. Is that? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I should be a level six. But I don't feel like a level six. Imagine if it, how much better it would be if we joined a cult instead. And we actually were. They were like, man, are you level? Are you level six yet? <laughs> be like what no i don't think so what and they're just like how do no, i ascend to level six us. you gotta pay us you'd be like oh yeah do i be-? and you'd, you'd still belong 
Yeah. Thank God there's no cults like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shout out yeah. to. No, I won't say it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> let, let, let's not get sued so early in our run. Um, it was a good run, David. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, like I, I didn't even come from a STEM background. Uh, I, I did philosophy in university, so a very far cry from working on software security and stuff like that. And my my first real uh, software job um, that lasted, you know, longer than a few months or whatever was I had been talking to this person at uh, it was the Calgary Open Source Software uh, Festival. And I was just having, you know, drinking my coffee and talking about this database I'd been making of events that had happened in the 80s, because I thought if VR ever got really good, we'd want to have all this information so that we can make like a really good simulation. Um, and uh, he said, hey, send me your resume. And 48 hours later, I had uh, uh, it was a, initially a job as a help desk, but um, it then turned into a software uh, gig over time. So like, I don't feel like there was any rite of passage as to how I got to where I am now. It just feels awful to say I kind of fell into it, um, especially since I know it's hard for a lot of folks to break into it. And so uh, occasionally some, you know, fourth year computer science uh, theory thing will come up. And it's like, oh, well, afraid I don't know that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because because there is no foundation laid and these things keep coming up, I, I think that lends itself to the persistence that comes over time where it's just like oh well you never did comp size so you know you don't know what you're doing never mind that i've now been in the industry for many years and i mean i've i've been at a keyboard since i was four so i mean i've been doing it a real long time it was just a hobby that turned into a job um and i'm, I'm very fortunate in how that turned out but uh yeah, I think that for me is the source of my imposter syndrome is that there are people who that they have done the process uh, in quotes properly. And uh, and a lot of them are very much smarter than me. So, <laughs> yeah, I like what you're well, saying about the properly. Go ahead, Clayton. I cut you off there. Oh, I was just going to say it's it's funny because um, it the key part, I think, is the the. Um, discounting your own success and ability right so that's like a cognitive distortion um like minimizing your successes and maximizing your failures mm -hmm. right or just completely discounting them it's not the, it's the weird thing right because if you were just like if this is just people who come from non-traditional backgrounds who didn't do don't have this degree or didn't do this in school or don't have like that set of experiences, I, I'd be keen to say like, oh, well, then there's a way around this, which I think there probably is. However, a lot of people have like like that feeling of of you work in a place with smart people and oh, no, they're going to find out is uh, it's persistent and it's persistent with also smart people like people that I trust. And I think they're really good or the people that are like, oh, no, they're going to what if they find out and you're like, what, 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 are, what are they going to find out? So what? Like, yeah, yeah, I think part of that is you mentioned like the proper way. 
you know, when you talk about, when I hear about origin stories for some of like the greatest engineers or developers, etc., my origin story is so far from that that I'm like, I don't think that I fit the mold of like where you're supposed to come home or like where your, you know, your, your, your story is supposed to begin in order for you to be successful in this industry. So it's like I'm borrowing time until I'm exposed and and then I have to go find like a job that actually mats, matches my skills and not, you know, not having the comp sci background. That was something that I kind of or not even having any like like a bachelor's or undergrad or anything. That's something that I sort of kicked myself for constantly over the years and try to compensate with that over for that in many different ways. And in some ways, I think it was good that I didn't because I was trying to compete with those that did. And I was like, okay, now I have to, you know, increase my base level of skills so that I can, you know, first of all, survive and provide. Um, And then in many ways, I also didn't have to go through the things that some people have to unlearn from going through that process. And I'm only discovering that now is I'm now going through that, you know, post-secondary process and realizing, holy shit, this is the stuff they teach you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it's nice to be able to finally battle it, but that's something that was always troubling for me, especially when I'm in a sort of a senior role to someone who's got two or three degrees more than me. And I was like, what is, what do I have that I can provide to this person? You know, they, they have dedicated a good chunk of their life to this job by going to school for, you know, so many years and I'm in a position to lead them. I was like, I'm an imposter, you know? And so like, they don't, they don't, they're not going to respect me or, or what I have to say. I didn't go through what, what they did, but I was wrong. In many cases, a lot of people did gravitate and, you know, accept me. And I, and I think that helped, but it's still that feeling of like inadequacy or not having the core knowledge that they have um, that was going to limit me in some way. And I kept waiting for that moment to happen. And there were moments where it did, but uh, I don't think it's been bad enough that uh, <laughs> you know, things had to end for me here. I mean, I think it was, I want to say Thoreau, but they were talking about how, uh, suppose you had two children, one goes off and, uh, you know, makes their own Swiss Army knife by smelting and like they sharpen it. They do all the work to create that knife. And another goes and gets a degree in metallurgy. Who who has a better understanding of the knife? Um, and I, I mean, you can make an argument for both sides. And I, I think that's it's easy to discount experiences and other things when it doesn't directly apply. But I mean, I've, I mean, I've done a whole bunch of jobs that were not computer related at all. Um, so like I've done forklifts, I worked at a seven 11, you know, you push grocery carts, you do things like this, but if you're observant, you can actually pick up a ton of stuff about process, good management styles. Uh, uh, and, it's only now as you know now now that i've been putting myself through the ringer all these years of like oh it meant nothing it turns out actually like it wasn't wasted time and the other stuff and i mean we talk so much about how you know the software industry has group think a lot of that comes from well if everyone's are all in uh comp side degrees yeah and they've never had to work a job you know cleaning toilets yeah, there's things that you miss out on that you, you you lose the perspectives. Um, and I mean, that, that that's sort of the conversation of why there needs to be more diversity in uh, software. I, I don't think that 
like diversity means a lot of things there. Uh, mm-hmm. It means economic diversity. It means racial diversity. It means gender diversity. Like you need those perspectives. In neurodiversity, yeah, like all of them. Like it turns out, the more you have, uh, the better view of the world you can have as a collective. Um, oh my God! So the thing that I almost threw things through windows before I had to calm down was like being around our office and people just not like a significant chunk of everybody around me not understanding like how reality works like like you'd be there and you're like okay so we're why are we why are we like running water for instance in the kitchen along the grout and cracking it and then not and then wondering why everything is fucked up you're like here here let me fix this let me let me let me like put the tray under the drip tray and then you just kind of like watch people for, like not not understand like water dripping like what <laughs> like, like i'm like no no like i do it would this be more helpful if we started from like a base set of assumptions we made a logic tree like what it's 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 weird right like that so i think that it's it's kind of interesting because i think there's that feeling right so, so I, there's kind of two things, right? So there's the feeling that, like, these programs are, like, I don't know, like, wizard school or uh, a seminary, like, where you learn to talk to God. And that we don't have – there's no secret knowledge, right? Like, like it's all out there. Um <laughs> <laughs> so but it's it's only you know there's like the chosen few who are meant to to be bestowed this knowledge and are capable of it right and it's like i i i don't think i'm one of the chosen few um so, so wait you till were they a just... late you were a late entry and you missed the sorting hat and you're never gonna live that down <laughs> and, just, uh, and i feel the funny thing is i say this and i'm like this applies to you too but not me because i'm like if they really did find out about me oh right like it's it is, yeah, it's interesting because it's persistent, but I think the um, it's weird, right? Like you can even between like people who mostly have math degrees, right? They still have a CS, but really they have a math degree, and people who are program heavy CS and software engineering, there's leagues of difference, and a lot of it still comes down to like, were they keen and did they get a first job, and did they work? Because like. I got I, I stopped doing interviews a long time ago when my nose disagreed with a lot of people's. But there was a lot of like people coming in with with this stuff and you're like, huh. Like this is like this is like a, a developer position. Like you can't even pretend. Right? So it's like it's yeah, it's that thing. It's the it's a cognitive distortion because regardless of your successes or your failures and how like the failures are maximized, the successes are diminished. And then looking at other people, it's a, still a selective look, right? Like I don't, I'd say it's not looking towards sort of the middle of the pack. It's looking towards the successful people. And then within that, the most successful, which is funny because when you talk to them and you get them alone <laughs> and people have had a couple of beers, they're like, holy shit, no one's found out about me yet. We're sure pulling and pulling the wool over their eyes. And you're like, what are you <laughs> right like like it, it it is it is fundamentally like a lot of it's a cognitive distortion i won't say all like there's probably there's probably kernels of truth or there can be but mm-hmm. how do you like how do you go about combating that in yourself because that's energy right like it takes yeah. energy 
and it saps your confidence, which saps your decision making. I mean, it does a lot of yeah. things. Oh yeah, and it takes away energy that could be better utilized in other ways. And it's hard, it, you know, the managing that and and like trying to ignore it and suppress it in a way takes more energy. And yeah. you're just like you're you're drained. Uh, we're, we have to like find new sources of energy just to you know deal with being able to do what you love doing anyways, but then also manage the the facade. You know, the, yeah. the, the, <laughs> they'll expose me. Um, oh, my God. Here's here's my new hot take on imposter syndrome. If you weren't spending so much goddamn energy on it, you wouldn't have it in the first place because you'd be working. <laughs> How's that for a spicy? That's, that's a hot take. Oh. You heard it live on <laughs> I think on that, uh, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, we'll be right back. I was just thinking about a little bit more about imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and like, do you want to talk about, cause I was wondering, I was, I'm just thinking like how much of it had, cause we, we all worked together in a place with, I felt very bad feedback. Like everybody was too busy to give you personally to give you much. So I never knew what I was doing. I was supposed to figure it out. And even when I was like, I never knew what I was doing. Well, I never really had a defined job. So there was just sort of like, an amorphous set of responsibilities that you yourself figure out. And then, you know, as you say that Clayton, like I've heard many people describe it like that. And for me, it's kind of weird because I'm like, my first job was, Oh, the person that (laughs) that hired you just quit last week and here's his computer and no one else knows what to do. And we don't know where the source (laughs) code is. Can you figure out where it is? And, and then build on top of it and ship this thing in three months. And I was like, Oh, this is software development. You're just, you have to figure it on your own. Right. So like, to me that, that was normal. It wasn't until I started hearing people say like, Oh no, like I don't get much feedback. I don't have any guidance. I'm like, guidance, who's supposed to give you guidance? People are supposed to give you guidance. Cool. I want one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I don't know. I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I think it's necessary in order to grow people. Like, I don't want people to experience or enter software or program or any career for the matter, like in the way that I did, where you're just like thrown in, figure it out on your own and uh, good luck. Um, because that's, <laughs> first of all, I learned so many bad things and mm-hmm. a lot of things I had to unlearn in that process and having a little bit of guidance and feedback and structure would have saved me and the organization a lot of time and mistakes. Um it's a shame there can't be more gamification in careers. It's yeah. like, here, here's your merit badge because you actually, you know, you fixed a nearly dead Git repository. Like, or here's a badge because you actually figured out this massive production issue that was non-obvious. Like, yeah, it's see, hard to see that. See, I want this to come in with really shitty badges because i can't leave well enough alone but like here's a badge badge. because you're the other person who managed to change the fucking paper towel like instead of just like strewing it around the office yeah yeah there's a badge for like basic functions you you Uh, saw an empty pot of coffee and replaced it with a fresh pot of coffee yeah there's not a lot of there's not a lot of us around uh yeah uh, I, I'm but sorry. I, I, I stopped drinking coffee, so I, I can't contribute anymore. Well, you don't contribute to the problem. That's true. <laughs> but I mean, and not merit badges, right? But like, I do think there's a problem with like the basics of not really knowing what it is, not knowing when it's done, especially when you start. Mm-hmm. 
that gives you a persistent feeling of, is this it? Did I do it? Am I right. doing it? And if and I think part, I mean, we worked at a busy place where we were understaffed, definitely had something to do with it. But like, nobody had time. But still, I mean, it's kind of hard to shake that feeling when you just kind of grow into a place. And at the start of it, personally, was a like, nobody ever told me anything. And you just sort of figure it out and periodically have put the brakes on production or on like on release and be like, no, 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 this like, this is crazy broken. Look at this. Well, and I mean, I did, I do QA, right? So that's sort of the, if I do well, it's unfortunately I, I should, co I should code more automation, but uh, my happy place is like picking it apart and like, well, that's weird. I wonder how much weirder I can make that. Like, can I turn that into like a real, a real dangerous break? Let's. I mean, you were doing it like naturally when we joined this call and I think you were clicking what looked like the full screen icon and it, it <laughs> takes a snapshot and you're like, what that, this is not intuitive. Right. And this doesn't make any sense. Cause I look at it. I'm like, Oh, full screen, click it. Oops. There's Clayton. Oh, you just did. I just clicked <laughs> it. I've, got, I've got a wonderful photo yeah. of Clayton. <laughs> um, so there's, I, I don't know, you sort of have that natural instinct of like recognizing bound, like, you know, what's off in the world, what's not, um, what's not right. And then also, I think it, the other skill that's important is just being able to say, uh, this is not going out, like, stop. <laughs> Are you serious? And, and, and saying that the hard to say thing, which is, I don't think we should ship or I think we need to yeah. fix this. Yeah. Uh, and it takes a lot, a lot of times, of yeah, well, I think or, and care. Yeah, care. I think you can develop the confidence once you have enough time and skill, but like you have to care to, to want to ship quality. And that, that means uh, saying no when it's really yeah. to. But I don't, I don't think we cracked the egg of imposter syndrome. <laughs> we didn't come up with a solution. Ah, man. Oh, I thought you did. Let's just stop spending energy on it. And oh, then right. Do the and, thing. And use, uh, yeah. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that sort of like, cheer up bucko that's about as useful as <laughs> yeah, like exactly. buck up <laughs> yeah yeah you've never had it as good so Play, i did uh, i did stop worrying start working <laughs> yeah i i did um hear this interesting little tidbit which was you know the the idea of pulling yourself up by a bootstrap the original you know it's impossible to of course pull yourself up by a bootstrap and it's, somebody's like no 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 we've perverted it it's supposed to be an illogical statement like, you can't bootstrap yourself. When people talk about it, they're forgetting the, the meaning of, like, it's ludicrous to be flat on your back and pick yourself up. And on my mind, I was like, what? <laughs> Looking this up right now. Uh, Which, it was I mean, the internet, so it may have been a lie. It's the primary function of the internet is to, like, mislead you and make you click on an ad. Right? Isn't that, <laughs> that's how we make money on online i think unless you're unless you're selling something directly yeah you know i i think imposter syndrome it's it's always going to feel slightly different for everyone because oh i'm an imposter because of x and even if someone who is successful who had the exact same situation is like oh but that's a special case it's like yeah no i i think everyone's in the same boat uh and those who so probably aren't might have a bit of Dunning-Kruger. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's also, I think the, um, I think it plays into the over-certification of the world we're experiencing. Like, what does that mean? Over-certification? Uh, 
how many certifications you need to do anything. Like how many how many jobs want a bachelor degree when they they maybe needed a grade 12 30 40 years ago and a grade 9 60 70 years ago and people with a grade 9 were doing fine. <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah not yeah. to not to diminish you know getting a getting a I don't know whatever degree strikes your fancy and that sort of level of analysis into something you're interested in but the idea that it's necessary or that it's just kind of like, oh, like, what are we doing? So I think I think it's pervasive. But like, no, 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 you need this. Yeah, you- I'm definitely afflicted by that. And I, I don't understand, like, how it entered my mind. I, I, I can sort of remember being in high school thinking, OK, rich people go to university and the rest of us have to go figure it out. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't. I, that's how the world works. Right. And if you were going to be successful, you were one of the people who could go to university and you just became successful. And the rest of us, uh, some of us were lucky and we figured out some of us did things that you're not supposed to do so that you didn't have to feel shitty, but you could still have some level of success in your life. And the rest of us just sort of like poked along. So, like, what is it that could have caused that sort of thinking today that, you know, this, this need for certification, as you called it, to be successful? And is it valid? Like, is it valid? Do you need certifications to be successful? And what is success? That's so I, I'm going to go and say no. I think I think at least in from what I've seen from being a, a young man, so like 20 years ago when I was like 20 um, and watching things from like a physics background, all of a sudden need postgrad degrees. Like medical physics, you needed at some point like any master's degree related to imagery, and you'll you'd get trained up, and then all of a sudden there's a postgrad degree. And I think a lot of it, a lot of it stems from employers not wanting to do any training. A lot of it stems from institutions trying to capture a market because they're they've become a real capitalist business, and that idea of basic research or, or being institutions of higher learning, I think is lost. Like when I was at, at the U of G, like undergrad, when I was in grad school, like undergrads were defined as consumer units. Like they were your consumer. And I was like, this is, wow, <laughs> this is doing the wrong thing. Right. Um, and the more expensive it gets, the more in turn, those institutions need to prove that like, there's there's value in trying to deliver on it, regardless of how much of a lie it is. But like, I mean, we're I don't quite get how much in education's grown because I don't have kids, so I don't pay attention in Canada. But it's it's a lot, mm-hmm. and that compared to the U.S. is mm-hmm. even worse. So it's like, yeah, actually, if you're gonna take on a like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. Mm-hmm there'd better be something coming out of it. And that better be people are better be trying to prove it, even though it's kind of largely cultural. Like you go to university to have this experience, to learn these things. And what we do kind of know is that it's actually all a lot of it's networking. I don't know. I had a a professor, a math professor once be like, Oh, whatever. It's an undergrad degree. You basically buy that. Like, (laughs) like, like it's like an undergrad. Like it doesn't matter where your undergrad degree in math comes from. It's not until you actually like start working and doing grad school that like you learn what someone's medal is. And I was like, huh, that's that's really interesting. That was a professor. Oh, yeah. He was, you know, you get tenure and you can still be a crotchety old man. It's a a really good job for crotchety people. 
Well, you could speak truth. I mean, you're you're hearing the straight truth. He's got at that point, I guess, no reason to sugarcoat it. And if um, that's his outlook, which is really interesting, because like it's also his his work, his mm-hmm. life's work. Um, well, wow. and I mean, I, I'm also thinking of. I mean, we talk about the university experience and what you get out of it. Uh, even MIT, they just uh, <clears throat> they did this thing called the missing semester, and it I was talking that. about using git and yeah. uh use, like all these things which in industry are just kind of taken for granted like I'm yeah more. you should know how yeah. version control works and again not coming from a computer science background like i was always uh, up until i saw mit do this i always thought like geez you know did the people just glaze over in the classes no they're not even teaching it and mm. i mean there's are, are you trying to learn the theory part or are you trying to learn you know, a vocational aspect of it, but things like version controls, given how critical they are, that seems like something should be like a first year topic. And yeah, it's, that's an interesting point, because I think I always kind of thought the you if you're if you're in the industry or you're trying to break into the industry, have a personal GitHub repo where your projects live. And I was like, well, maybe I mean, that seems kind of weird. Maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you and Actually, I'm like, you don't even need to have much there to prove. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty good step to be like, you've in you've used Git. Just once. fork a bunch of projects. Just go yeah. like find the most popular projects, fork them, and have them show up on your profile. Right. And I, honestly, <laughs> that would show you that like you you have a basic understanding. Right. Oh, you can fork yeah. things. You have a fork. If you've made a code change to make it yours, you have like you've forked you you've maybe seen the PRs like there's when you think about it, there's actually just a subset of skills in there that that might be evident from that that thing that I kind of thought, eh, that's kind of a weenus thing. But again, I didn't do any of this in school. So I just assumed that like computer oh. science poops you out as a a fully formed like person ready to <laughs> destroy the world of software. Uh, like I, I interviewed for a job one time by um, I uh, found the chef cookbook and uh, I forked it, sent a PR in of like, OK, well, I updated uh, your products cookbook, which is uh, there. And, and I mean, after, after that, the, the technical part of the interview uh, was fairly quick, largely just because they saw, oh, well, I mean, you already know how to do that part. So. All the rest of it should come pretty naturally, I guess. The thing that always drove me insane when I was doing interviews is how little, how much we were trying to measure stuff and how little we spend time on like, no, 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 I got a bad feeling about this. Because that is, I, I, I apparently the, the reasons are numerous why I'm not doing interviews anymore, but I will say that I would, I was in disagreement. I mean, it was a lot of it was on the nose and when I was saying no, and when I was saying yes, was different than people. And fair enough. Have me, if there's what me making it complex, kick me out. But, uh, because it all was like, no, 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 we need a more refined technical part. Cause true. We need to be able to like hire people and understand what they can do with it's That's really hard. But I think at some point it, it took away from the like, how are these people? Do I want to work? Because mm-hmm. I mean, we were all doing hiring and hiring committees for our same grade, and maybe there's one person a grade above you. 
So you're kind of hiring your coworkers. And I think, I think that got lost, but I think it's important. Like, I don't know. Is your spidey sense tinkling about somebody? It's weird to say, cause it's kind of like, maybe you just don't like their haircut. But at one point, people's spidey senses definitely tingled when they should have and got ignored. And I've, I've seen, so having done a whole bunch of interviews uh, as well, we've tried as best as possible, to, you know, to remove, uh, you know, personal bias from it. But like we have one hands-on part of the test where, uh, okay, so there, there's a problem with uh, the script not running. And we would see people like, you know, they'd chmod uh, slash var to 777. Oh and uh, I mean, we, we talk about spider sense tingling. It, yeah, okay. it, if your response to a file system permissions issue is, oh, I will just make the entire thing world readable. No SSH for you. <laughs> yeah, that's... And I I do believe that, that companies do play you know a role in the training of, of people, but you would hope yeah. That again, someone coming out of like you spent four years in computer science, you have a degree, and you don't understand how permissions work. Like that—that's such a fundamental issue, well, that, and, and it, it's kind of hard not to walk and come away with that. With part of that data point. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a good way of like, hey, here's my interview question. What's sketchier than just like? Logging in as root and running everything as root. And the answer is changing the like permissions to world readable. Like, like you know, pseudo is a better choice than that. <laughs> um, I, there, there was something you said there, though. <laughs> Finish your thought, Clayton, and then I'll... I'll... Yeah, and, he, and I was just... It, it was the... Um, it's, again, that notion of, like, what these degrees should do or what these certifications or what people... And I think that... Uh, as we're all sitting here talking about imposter syndrome with imposter syndrome, uh, <laughs> we probably have a really inflated sense of what it gives you. Uh, what, like, which, no, what comes out of a degree? Oh, I mean, that's a gap I'm trying to fill right now. I, I, I feel like there's my my vision of grad school and undergrad school, whatever, is that you're given these magical powers of knowledge. And there's like a, a huge like gap in my understanding of the world that's missing that I need to fill. Um, and you, you talked about like the two people before, like the practitioner versus the, you know, the person who's been in school. And like, I think it's to me, if those two could actually intersect and work together and respect each other's abilities, you've got a solid team there. People like, you know, one who can bring like sage experience in terms of like, here's actually things that have worked well and haven't worked well. And then someone who can, all you know, have the understanding, but also be able to communicate that. And so being able to share that knowledge, like that bridges an amazing gap. But like, I, I don't know, like I'm sitting here thinking, like, why did I go back to school? You know, I didn't need to. I mean, it's not like it boost my salary or anything. It's like I'm trying to fill this void because I just want to stop feeling shitty about not having a CS degree. You know, like <laughs> when we go to these interviews, I'm like, well, is that a good reason? And, and you know, part of it is like, well, kids are growing up and they're going to start, you know, thinking about what happens after high school. And like, I want to provide some guidance and I don't know what direction is. Maybe is it, is it post-secondary? Like, am I going to try to guide them towards something that I didn't necessarily do? Um, Am I, and and can I provide that guidance without having any experience in the field? So hopefully, you know, going through this process of experience a bit of, you know, of post-secondary and also having seen how things work out in, in the real world, 
can help influence that. And this conversation is definitely adjusting my thinking a little bit about like how I think of the certifications, right? Because for some reason I'm holding PhDs and master's degrees and it's like something that I'll never have in or above me and therefore I can never be good enough. Well, I don't think in and of themselves, like, I mean, because I, I don't want it to seem, I, I don't want it to be perceived as anti-intellectual either. Yeah, I, I, I wanna, think yeah. there is value. Yeah, and there there's definitely value in those degrees, but it's it's having to be realistic about what you're actually getting out of it. What is the goal? Like, so for example, I, I'm looking towards getting my uh, CCIE, which nice. uh, is the Cisco Certified Internetworking Expert, and I mean some of that comes from you know again no credentials, and you, you feel like yeah there's this void, but what I really want to get out of it is I want to find out terrible horrible things in protocols yeah. and this is like the best way to learn about it because when yeah. else would you actually sit down and read those rfcs like page uh, you know cover to cover and it's like okay i have to know exactly how this is going to be like passed around um and I, and it's a structured way to do that uh, but i also realize okay does that mean that i know understand everything about networking necessarily no <laughs> does it mean i'm like well equipped for any other equipment vendor besides cisco like don't know <laughs> uh like it, it it's a very specific look but i think also i i've gone into it now with just enough networking experience that when i look at the sort of curriculum that's ahead i could be really excited by it mm-hmm. whereas I mean, if if you're going into computer science, but you've never spent any time in computers, which is fine, you may not understand where the shortcomings are. And, and that, uh, to most point, like, yeah, having having some practice with the theory and getting that nice little feedback loop of is this relevant? Is this going to be something that can that I'm going to see in the field? But also like being able to think about it at a higher level, like. You need to have both, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's moments where, like, I'm going through some of these courses now, and I'm like, this is how, it, you know, an index works. Like, I've always used the database index. I've done, you know, alter table, add index, no, like, no problem. But then actually going through, and it's like, oh, it's, I get it. I can actually build my own index now. I understand what it's doing, like, how it's actually implemented, you know, and, and why it's faster. And, like, not just say it from, like, a superficial level. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you're joining on that column and that column. You should probably use a composite index or you're, you know, it's it'll reduce the amount. It's, like, actually, like, understanding, like, oh, you're actually reducing the number of seeks you have to do on the disk and being able to find, uh, you know, a contiguous section of data to load out of a page file and into memory. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. I'm going to build this. Like, it's like putting the two worlds together. I've been doing it and now I'm understanding it. And, and that's a, an amazing feeling. But I don't know if I would have that same level of joy if I hadn't, if, if I couldn't figure out how to apply it or where it's applicable. Like if I was just, you know, fresh in in like a CS court class right now, the same class, I'm like, okay, index files and data files, we put like all the header information at the top of the file and then there are pointers to sections. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, why, why is this useful? Where am I going to use? Do I need to learn this? Do I need to know this now? Am I ever going to do this? Like, to me, I, I don't know that that information would be as useful to me as it is right now. All I could hope would be to, like, that I would have enough, inf- like, re- I'd be able to remember where to look up that information mm-hmm. if I ever get to a point where it seems like something I should go look up. 
Whereas now it's, I'm actually building a database because it's crazy <laughs> and I'm going to throw it away, <laughs> but it's fun. Well, that's always the, the thing to remember is that, you know, we sort of forget that how green faced I, like I was when I started university and stupid and just naive in the world. Right. So that's, that's a thing that. The right. experience that you get as a like high school to university and then out yeah. is very different than going back. And it was often, I guess, mature students or anybody over the age of 25 usually have a wholly different experience, which is which is true. Like I was in I was in school with people like, uh, you know, someone who there was a couple of people older and one of them just was his retirement was a physics degree and he would just he just like slowed down because he's like i don't have enough time to think about any of it like all of this and i was like yeah yeah like we're, i'm barely keeping up as part of the curriculum but uh <laughs> yeah i would say though i do have a really good imposter degree what does that uh, mean why well, so i have a like a i did grad physics so i have a master's degree in physics and nobody knows what that means so they it you come really in smart. Yeah, you come in and they're like, oh, shit, I bet you this guy could do that, do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel and every it, day about like, my job. <laughs> but it's not like it's it's just another course of knowledge, right? Like it does. I mean, it does, of course, affect your thinking and, and like all these things, spending a lot of time in them. Like I think I, my grand total was like eight years really does change how you think about things. But yeah, it's that like I get I wonder if it's better now that Big Big Bang Theory is made its stamp on the <laughs> shitty stamp on the world. but like oh my god you have a you must be able to do everything and it's like well i mean everything that was in the curriculum of my degree i learned about so fit so like right. I, I don't know You're why you want me to lasers. look at your car yeah yeah <laughs> like i have totally gotten that question like are you uh somebody once asked me if i'm you know the smart if i think i'm the smartest person in the room or something or they thought i was or something and i was like well i bet you looking around that I know, I know more about like the really narrow area that I did my master's research on. Most rooms, I know more about that little tidbit, just from like selection. But as a whole, like no, nah, no, nah, man, it's just another course of you. Fo- yeah, it's. But anyway, it's a good imposter degree because people don't know what you do, and they're like, "You must be smart." The answer <laughs> is like, if I'm so goddamn smart, why did I do experimental instead of computational? That's a good question for you. <laughs> I wasn't very forward-looking or thoughtful in that choice. <laughs> well, we're, we're I think we'll take another quick break, um, and we'll be right back. Agile, that word that oh. strikes fear into the oh. hearts. Oh. So why don't you go, Mo? You have some strong feelings about it. What I do don't have strong it? feelings about it. I think, like, I, I like small A agile. I think big A agile kind of – for me, like, any process – there should be enough process to keep you uh, um, focused so you know what you're working on and accountable and enable you to actually deliver working software. And so, like, for me, I, I gravitated to Agile pretty early in my career, initially to XP. And my first XP team was amazing. We pair programmed constantly. We had a shared workroom. Everything was on the board. Uh, it, it was amazing. We didn't have a customer on site, uh, but the closest thing to the customer uh, we did have customers come in, but we had uh, the, a, a very an ambassador for the customer on site constantly that we could talk to. And so I fell in love with Agile, especially just being able to deliver software, working software in a 
you know, a, a time-based boundary, which works well for me. Otherwise, I would just keep coding and coding and never ship anything. And so I, I love iterative development and shipping things in small pieces and learning to take a big problem and break it down into smaller pieces. And that works for me. What doesn't work so well is like when you start adding things to the process for the sake of just following the process blindly, I don't like overhead. And so for me, it's like a balancing act in terms of trying to find just enough to keep this particular team focused, motivated, growing uh, and delivering and not just like implementing features like a feature factory, but also not too much so that uh, you just have all these barriers to do anything because, oh, okay, you know, I found a defect. Well, the fastest thing for me to do in some cases is just go jump on it and fix the defect rather than I got to go open up some issue tracker, go describe the defect, go put it in the backlog, you know, convince someone at a at a refinements meeting to prioritize it before we can actually get a change. In some cases, I think that's the right thing to do. In most cases, that way you don't get bogged down, with, you know, fixing everything right away. Some cases, I just want to cut the line of code, write the unit test that like reproduces the defect and ship it. And and so I think it's a balancing act of finding that right balance that works for that team. We're big A agile. Again, we're like you come prescriptive, prescriptive, like it's almost like a religion in a way where you have to follow things by the book and do this this certain way. Otherwise, you're failing. I don't really believe in that, whether it's waterfall or agile. I think it depends on the team and and what works well for that team. If the team believes in iterative development through XP or through, you know, Kanban or through Waterfall, that team will be successful based on what works for them. So that was my strong feeling. Did that, did that, yeah, that no, too I mean, strong? Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a good, a good amount of strength. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've been uh, maybe, yeah, I've been thinking about sort of moving around in agile I agree with just about everything. I think the thing about having a framework is that it gives you a structure to impose on a team that sort of that 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 works and then you can change it. Oh yeah. Right? Cuz cuz I think that the thing about having a really good functioning team that has all of its own little quirks or its own system worked out is that that's not transferable if you start at it like if you cut it in half um, and, and, and you, you add people to those new halves, they don't get back to the same place. So you kind of, I kind of think that that's the, the formality I like for that. But what I don't like is how people aren't necessarily seeing the purpose to the process. So I kind of, I kind of think that the better everybody knows it, and I've been in it. I was not a fan of it to begin with. I had like really bad agile experiences at, at, my, at a different job. Like I think I, my first scrum that I was ever exposed to was 35 people. Oh my goodness. And it was like, we're <laughs> That's having, like a status meeting. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and it was like 40 minutes. And then there was a scrum of scrums. So if you can imagine there were multiple that many, that large. And I was like, what? This is useless. Like, I don't know what's going on after this. I'm just more confused. Yeah. So, and like a lot of people, right? Like a lot of people who don't like agile come to it with bad experiences because I don't, I think it's not just daily stand standups. Like I think if people approached it from a core of there's all the window dressing. And I think the core of it is like, is as you said, it's like it's iterative development with accountability and some transparency. Yeah. Transparency is a piece I missed. And that's, that's the fundamental goal is to be able to take some sort of value, define what the value is that you're going to ship, break it down into a small enough piece that you can actually 
provide value sooner to whoever's going to use it. And I think that's it, right? When you reduce it down to that, all the practices that you do around whichever you know version of, of Agile you choose is to achieve that goal. So you don't want to lose sight of what that is. It's not just mm-hmm. you're playing the, the the game of just we're going to do these practices for the sake of that's how you do it. It's like the end goal is we're still shipping software to people, right? Like someone's got to use this thing. And, and our goal is to be able to ship it more often, frequently. So first of all, we get tighter feedback loops, meaning if I make a small change and I get that out there, I can res- learn from that change sooner than I can from like a huge, like a large batch of changes all at once. The, you know, when something goes wrong, it's like harder to identify where the defect originated from. The feedback loop for actually shipping that code out is longer, which means by the time you get any feedback, you've lost an opportunity to learn because you've also lost context. And so by getting those shorter feedback loops for me, it just keeps me sane. I don't remember what I did or wrote two months ago. You want me to like debug what <laughs> from two months ago? Um, my my working memory is like good enough for the last week. Yeah. So if we can ship working software within a week, my ability to respond, it's much better. I don't write perfect code. And uh, I think that's what the, the iteration, that's what draws me to iteration. It, it sort of allows me to live in a world where I know I make mistakes, but I can respond to it. And we can make these mistakes small enough that it's not going to be a catastrophe. And I get to learn sooner from it and adjust and course correct. Mm-hmm. So I think coming from like the, the QA side, what I found, and it didn't hit me how important this would be or how, like I was on a, a relatively small team that wasn't siloed, but how much siloing just happens because of time. Like if I'm not looking at something for two months or a month, just that amount of time. And then I go to a developer and was like, so I think like, I think this is an issue your their working memory's gone. They've lost context, as you said. Yes. Getting that feedback loop tighter and being like, "You've finished it. Now yeah. I'm looking at it." That level of, of of tightness is really. I appreciate that more than I understood that I would before I was in it. I like it. Like I'm liking what we're doing. But uh, well, and also, I mean, I'm on a team. I'll say this: it's a methodology, and I enjoy working on a team that's employing a methodology. Because I think before that, there was a lot of like, I don't know, we're going to ship code, we're going to test, <laughs> we're going to test code, we're going to ship code. Probably in that order, we're going to build it first, then test it, then ship it. We think uh, <laughs> if a developer's working on something hard, maybe they end up in a rabbit hole for months. And again, it's that like, I bet you what was going on when I joined. I think it was good. And I think it was a small team that was transparent and accountable, which was doing all of that stuff, but that it didn't grow well and nobody thought about it. So I think that that like, yeah, making a methodology happen like, oh, we're like, oh, yeah, we are responsible. We are talking about how it happens. Do dig the feedback mechanism like retros are interesting if you can get them good. If you get it right. Yeah. And they're really hard. Like I was talking to somebody else about. You know, we work on teams that have our team leads. So I do. And I was just talking to a, a person who is a product owner on a, on a different team. And they were like, what? And I'm like, you know, like the people who I report to are on our teams. And they were like, but that's insanity. How? And I'm like, I know, like, I kind of, I think we've managed it. But retros aren't as useful as they would be if our boss wasn't there. Oh, I like, see. well, that's it, right? Like, if I'm working with you and Dave's my boss. Dave's our boss. Yeah. The way that I construct feedback is going to be different because i like you 
And even if I don't like you, like we're com- we're comrades, we're compatriots. So yeah. like I'm not going to like I'm not going to say things that might bite you just because it's not it's it's not deep. Yeah. So you you end up that so I think that filter that happens when like in that case it worries me, and it it actually kind of worries me that nobody's it isn't so apparent. Because yeah. I'm like this worries me, and sometimes somebody will be like, oh yeah, but a lot of times people are like, yeah, I bet you it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. like like i've worked here for a long time so i actually kind of don't feel like that anybody is really my like i've been here for a while i know everybody i'm in a bit of a different mental space but i'm like somebody who's been here for a year or less that is really really their boss right like that person if, the, if their wow. boss asked them to go pick up their dry cleaning i bet you that person would have to have a little discussion with themselves to figure out what to do where i would just be like that is either a joke or I'm going to like, that's so right. inappropriate. That's, you know what I mean? But we don't, everything's professional, and, yeah. but it, th- those power imbalances are still there. So that's one. I mean, that's the thing I'll say that. Right. It's more than of, just title. There's so many more things that sort of come into play with that power dynamic and that power yeah. dynamic shifts the conversation of what can be said, and what's safe to say and what the repercussions of saying it is to who. I think is, is sorry, Clayton. I cut you off, but I think that's where you're you're going, right? Like yeah. for the for like a retro to add the value that a retro can is you need to have that open and honest conversation about what the actual state of the previous iteration was for each person, and trust that the people that you're communicating that to isn't going to judge you or harm you in some negative way, and that they're actually going to listen, empathize, and then you know find ways to make this better for you and the team as a collective because a collective team is going to outperform the individual. And Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying is like when you've got those power dynamics, like whether it's like a a strict title imbalance, whether, you know, you're a senior, et cetera, that can shift what people are comfortable saying. And because of that sort of self-censor or filter, you don't get the honest feedback necessary to um, bring things to the air that need to be discussed and and improve on. Do you think that it's possible that you could get like a, a leader in the room that would be open to hearing that? That, that could actually empower you to say these things because you know that they're going to actually help you resolve some of these problems, like remove blockers rather than push them back to you? So I think there is, because I, I think I've been in the room with one, but it's hard. It's a skill. It's a skill, and it takes a level of awareness that I just don't think a lot of people develop. Right? Like it's that that people move up and their focus is still down. Right. That's a constant. Well, no, like you have to you're not technical anymore. You're up here right now. How are you? How are you dealing with people? How are you dealing with these things? And I think it's I think it's a sign of a good a, a good manager that they can think of that. But it's it's weird, right? Because it's well, it might be possible. It, it's not common and it's difficult enough that it's one of those like it, it's it's iffy. I would say it's an iffy thing to rely on people being that good at other people. Because in the end, Agile is really all about people, right? Yeah. Uh, collaboration, working together rather than, you know, building contracts to be defensive within one another. And really, like, it, that, a lot of the things that in order to do Agile well requires trust. Um, you know, trust that, like, if we, if we sacrifice this thing, you know, we compromise on this, that, you know, I will get the rest of it later, meaning that we can ship some working software sooner. Trust in that, 
you know, if a defect arises, that we will we'll be able to support each other in being able to resolve that. Trust in that, you know, the, the things that get prioritized in the backlog have the best interest of not just the customer, but also the engineering practices and, you know, paying down technical debt. It requires a lot of trust for multiple people. And where I really enjoyed Agile was on, like, the smallest team I was ever on. And this was in 2007 when we were learning Agile together. And we were doing it by the book because we're like, well, we can't just start making changes without actually experiencing things, like, by the book. Because, like, if we don't go through the practice of, like, doing it the way they prescribe it, then we didn't really experience it the way we were, you know, yeah. they had intended it for us. And then from there, you sort of develop a discipline and you get into a mode where, like, sizing, like, like story, what is it called? Planning poker becomes so fast because you get really good at breaking down user stories into basically the same points all the time because you're you're working together. You know how to break down the work. And so it becomes almost tedious to even, even do that exercise. Right. Because you're in tune with the rest of the team in terms of like sizing things and understanding the size of work. And at that point, Agile becomes a bit of an overhead where you can like, oh, OK, you know what? We're pretty good at actually breaking things down to fives. Let's skip planning poker. And now let's sort of maybe think about something like Kanban, because now we can start focusing on flow rate rather than, you know, I think Agile is like a great way having that framework. It's just like for any beginner learning anything, you need very specific steps. And you, so that you can follow those steps. And once you get those steps after a while, then you start to le- you know, develop a level of competence after enough time that, OK, now I can move to the next level and I may not need every explicit step uh, to be productive. But in the beginning, those steps are guidelines. They're also like they provide feedback. So, you know, whether you're on track or not, you were talking about feedback earlier. It's like when you're new to something, it's like, please just be very explicit with me as to what you want <laughs> so that I know if I'm on track eventually this will become sort of more intuitive. Yeah. I won't need those explicit guidelines. And this, I think this is where like the frame, like the methodologies and the different versions of Agile come into play, right? And when you start with any new team or group of individuals, just getting them in sync is hard enough. So having a practice or practices to follow. So when you don't have the answer, you can at least go to the guidance of those who have come before you and see what have you done in this scenario and have you broken it down? And then, you know, I imagine after enough time, it becomes overhead. But that's very rare for most teams. Mm-hmm. Well, there definitely is overhead. And there's a couple of things I worry about with it, which is like if the overhead becomes too onerous. So I think... I think the thing that really you have to include, which is really hard to include because of, again, um, power dynamics, right? Yeah, like yeah. if my boss invites me to a meeting that I don't need to be at, that's different than if my coworker invites me to a meeting I don't need to be at. One of those I can say no to, one of them I can't. I mean, I've put a lot of effort into skipping meetings in my tenure, uh, so I probably will just not go to either of them. But even still, that's not true. Actually, I'm thinking about it. I go to a lump, I go to a useless meetings, but only if my boss schedules them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty okay at skipping them sometimes. But you, yeah, sometimes an email is right, right? But uh, that overhead is is skipping ten meetings. Is- it's a skill, and I think it, it that overhead you need to have that. It's the level of trust in everybody, which is difficult especially for the people really i actually think it's for people outside of the development team it's different so i think like a product owner has a different relationship with the team than they have with themselves Mm. and the way that they trust each other so i think like trusting that people know when they don't need to be at a meeting and making sure it's explicit that like you don't need to be there if you don't want to be 
is totally fine. Does that sort and, of speak to culture in a way? Yeah, yeah. It, well, absolutely. Because I, and I think it's if you, so like, I mean, we had somebody, somebody start that, that I was like, oh yeah, these QA, full QA meetings, for instance, you should probably go to those. Yeah, right? you're, like, you need context. Well, and also, it's like, that context. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, it's our boss's boss. At some point, we do work for a big corporation that does get us to do stupid things, like company-wide all hands. I don't remember if you remember how bad those suck. But the culture does need to be like the people around you who you're learning from at the job. If they're not doing it, if they're going to, if they're going to meetings and hating them and working on their laptop and not paying attention, that's what you're going to do. And maybe you're not going to skip meetings. And the real answer is like, actually we should just like there should be a readme or an email that says what the decision is out of a thing what what happened so that nobody is there typing away or working right and that that's hard because i, I will say from current experience it's possible and and i think a lot of it has to do with culture right right in the handbook for the organization i'm with we have like a description of how meetings work and every meeting has to have a couple of things. First, it has to have an a, a attached document, which is usually like a link to a shared document that everyone has to have access to. And it's got to have an agenda that describes here's the purpose of the meeting. It doesn't have to be like a 10-page document. It's just here's the purpose of the meeting. Here's what we're going to discuss. And it's an opportunity for people who'd like to plan ahead to be able to contribute to the agenda beforehand. And for people who are unable to attend to have their questions answered in their absence. And so people can actually re review that document after the meeting um, or before the meeting, whatever works for them. Also, it's got to have a, a, a link that you can use to connect to so everyone can access this meeting. Uh, right. And, and I think those sorts of things create a lower barrier to entry to want to even attend a meeting and knowing that it's optional and that if you don't get all the information necessary, you can drop off or you can catch up later by by reading the notes. It does take discipline because somebody has to be recording what's happening and answering the questions on the fly, but it, it can it can yeah. exist. I'm gonna what? I'd like to redirect the conversation one thing, because I think there's one thing that sort of complicates Agile, and that's pay. Like individual pay. So that the team that I worked on where I said like Agile worked really well, we knew how much everyone else made. Because all the everyone in the developer role made the same amount. The manager made, and like we were bootstrapping a startup, so it wasn't like we were competing with each other as individuals to increase our individual needs. We were all making the same amount, and so therefore, we weren't being assessed individually. Over time, that becomes a problem, though, because certain individuals seem to be contributing more, and other people seem to be not contributing as much. And even if it comes up after retro, if there's no action taken from that, you start to start to develop feelings of well this sucks right like <laughs> I, I, or maybe you like being the one that's doing all the work and 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 not uh you don't mind as much when there is someone elaborate but as soon as you start getting like assessed individually where you're in the same role and your peer is now making more than you and you start have to evaluating yourself and you have to think about jockeying for position or etc etc whatever i think that's when things start to fall apart because people then start making taking action for individual good which may or may not be for collective good and that when that collective good is is being questioned or at play, it sort of hampers the goal of, I would say, like agile, right, which is to actually add value to the people who are receiving and utilizing the software, because you're sort of baking in waste. There's waste that's produced from focusing on individual goals 
and end of it. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like sort of the the, ju- the sort of the the difference between the collective versus the individual. And some people are going to prefer focusing on the individual, and they're not going to jive as much in an agile culture. Yeah, I think it's again, it's a non. No, I'm gonna, I don't know. It's a crumpling of the structure. I want to say non-flattening, but that's like, it's crumpling. it's right. Like it's it's this flat structure gets crumpled. Right. Yeah. Like we start to introduce hierarchy. And, yes. Yes. You know, that's it. I got another spicy tip. I got a couple of these today. Here's my spicy. If agile actually produces software that much better, which a lot of really strong adherents claim, maybe yeah. the solution is if this is true, then when that works, all team members should get paid the same as the highest paid team member. <laughs> I would be for that experiment, you know, like. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, but you have to have people who are willing to, to, you know, opt into that experiment. And you were, I, oh, that sounds awesome. Because for me, it was uncomfortable when I, you know, started talking to colleagues and finding out the pay discrepancies. I'm like, you're making how much? I'm making how much? We're sitting right next to each other. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and and now, like, I'm like, okay, well, I, I've just lost trust, right? And now I don't know, you know, with, with that little bit of lost trust, it's like, well, you were just hired and, and I guess market rates are higher now. And so all of a sudden you're making more than me. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me. You're, you want us to be focused on the collective good and work together and, and, but we're not equal. Um, I think that's where for me, this is me. It gets a little bit hard or even for me just knowing like, wow, I make this much more than you. Um, I don't think that I add that much more value than you. Uh, I have a few more years, but like, there's a bit of like guilt associated with that for me. Yeah, I have a family, but that that shouldn't impede your ability to to succeed. Or just because you don't have the the you know that magic number of years, you know, you and I are sitting next to each other. We add, I think, pretty equivalent amounts of value. However, we have no say over that, right? I can't donate my pay to you, and you can't, you know, like we can't balance that out. So I I really do think that the collective outperforms the individual. Um, it's unfortunate that like. For me, it's unfortunate that not everyone believes that or is willing to make the sacrifices to, to make that happen. And that's OK, too. Like everyone's different and that's not going to work for every everyone. And things change over time, too. So what worked for us today may not work for us tomorrow when when our life shifts. Yeah, that's 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 a big statement. Yeah, that's it is true, I think. And it's tough. What I'm seeing working for this, you know, big company uh, in tech is the part of the reason why people don't stay at a company is because raises aren't that good. So like, you know, I've, I've seen people leave who were good because that's how they could shift their title and their pay to be in line is by moving to another company because they, that they were hired to too low and then they grew quite a bit. And now how do you get that change? Well, you have to leave. That's a that could be a corporate problem of like we we got them like you can make a lot of movement in your initial offer but probably not year to year like yeah there's a lot there also it is really tough to have that so I don't know what anybody around me makes I just I have this kind of assumption they all make the same as I do which I absolutely know when I think about it is false don't ask them don't ask them live in their ignorance I'm gonna ask them all the time. If I meet somebody new to the office, that's my first. We should have, like, bring your T4s to work day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, 
it is interesting because I think that like there's a reason why was it uh, they Google fired the person who had a a Google Doc of everybody's salary. They were like, yeah, yeah. If you're shitty at negotiating and you don't understand your or you don't know your your value in the market and you don't understand what you can ask for. I have never negotiated when they give me the offer. I accept it's I don't even like I, I didn't know that this was something you were supposed to do. <laughs> and to me, it's like it seems crazy to me. Like, why do we have to play this game? Just pay me the value that you think I'm worth. I, I'm not I haven't spent any time like learning how to become a master negotiator. If I did, I'd be in sales. That's where I'd be putting my energy. Like what you want is not a salesperson. You want an engineer. So let's be practical and efficient. But the world doesn't work that way, does it? Like, no, there is this expectation that you have to quote unquote play the game. And so circling back to agile, agile, I think works. It's like all this other fuzzy stuff around it that makes it complicated. And so if you can balance the fuzzy stuff, with the core like ideas around agile and what it's meant to do great well (laughs) and i i do think it is fundamentally if everybody knows what's going on and you're free to change it for your team yeah for just the people like this isn't working for us we can change it it is because it is like it's an accountable like it's just your ship it's just a different way to or a methodology to ship software that we should be able to alter to our team i do think that you should try it to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, what you're doing. But yeah, I mean, it's that thing where give me give me a good 10 person team and you probably want a little bit of guidance to begin with. But I bet you, you probably are going to have pretty good software coming out at the end, regardless it, of the rule set. It depends but on you, the people, right? Like it's That's why I say good. If you people. have good people yeah. who like each yeah. other and trust each other, well, you're probably going to get a lot of the good stuff. And I think a, a lot of it is enforcing the modes of interaction to try to get that. But And I think that's sort of where some of the variability in, like Agile sort of handles that variability. Like you don't need an all-star team. In fact, all-star teams, I think, are rarely successful for, you know, if they were to play together for an entire season. And so like when you get a group of like average people, it works really well because you get average output. And that's sort of what you want. You want sustainable average output. You don't want these peaks and valleys. You don't want it to ship, you know, like amazing software, like outperforming every every sort of iteration. It comes at a cost. So get average people with an average pace and you've got some level of predictability so that you can you can grow from that. Um, and I think that's where it works well. Now, it's like those edge case people like who like you've got the I'm thinking of certain individuals at last who just like would go into the lab. You wouldn't see them for months at a time and they'd come back with this amazing solution. They'd be, you know, they'd turn hundreds of servers down to like six or half a dozen. Right. And it's like, well, I don't know how well iteration works for that individual. And I don't know if like the, you know, the agile methodology works for that individual. And that's a special case. Um, but the value they add, I think still, it, it doesn't like diminish or outweigh the rest of the team. I don't know how to balance that. Cause like, I, I want to empower that individual still to be able to do what they can do, but I also don't want to have special handling for certain people. So it's like, how do you deal with that? Like it doesn't work for everyone who can break down. Cause there's some problems that are really difficult to break down. And how do you break them down into small enough chunks that you can deliver something valuable in a week when nobody solved this problem before? Well, I think that's where Agile breaks down is how, like here we like I think at that widget level, like, yeah, we can build little widgets. Feature but factory. Yeah. What 
what about when you you hand somebody a really tough problem? And I think or you need to innovate in a space that nobody's thinking about. And that yeah. that I think it falls down. It's great to like put the problems in, put features in, crank the team, like crank all those gears, yeah. and you spit out features. But that innovation, that's that, I think that's a really tricky question. And I think if we answer it right here today. We'll, we'll get a lot of money from somebody or they'll just steal it and ignore that we did. That's more likely. But, but yeah, like how do you fostering innovation in that space is hard. And I think there, and I think there's a reason that it isn't for everybody. And I think I, you see people who violently hate it. And I think it's people who really, really like to, be alone, deep in thought. And that's where, or uh, some people that I've definitely seen that like, you want them alone, deep in thought, right? Like it isn't a blanket solution for all software problems. Because there isn't one. (laughs) No, no. And I think that changes too, because I'm thinking of myself here. There was a time where I really enjoyed pair programming. And there was a time where I wanted to pair program for several hours a day with colleagues and, and work together and today, the, the thought of that upsets me. Like, it's it, it would be so draining to me, and I would be such an unreliable pair just because I have obligations and commitments, and my part of my time and my schedule isn't even dictated by me. It's by the people around me that need my time, and I need to be available to them. So I can't I can't be uh, like an active participant or active pair like I once was, and I don't want to be. Um, I I want my space now, and so I think that that like shift in your own needs needs to sort of be addressed too like if if you are a team that's practicing xp i don't know if there's any xp teams out there anymore um and all of a sudden you know you're you're drained from doing uh pair programming all day and you used to be able to go home and you used to be able to just relax and re-energize and go back to work and now when you go home it's the same thing it's more and you gotta you know consume more energy you're just drained when you go to work. You need you need some downtime, and so you need to be able to accommodate and allow for those shifts and 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 needs for people. And if I wanted to ask you this question earlier, Clayton, and it's a bit personal. You're talking about potentially, you know, people who are potentially shifting roles in an organization, and I and I wonder, like, at certain points, when you get to like a certain level of expertise and you see the next generation come up and they're so much faster and leaner and, you know, able to see problems in a different way. Are you, do you run to a new role? Like, are you, are you going to that new role because it excites you or does that role seem like, okay, this is something I think I can do based on where I'm at without, you know, completely giving up, <laughs> like you know, cause I don't know where I belong in this new world anymore. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to figure out where my, my position is where do I fit into this? Cause everything's changed around me and it keeps changing and, and um, something needs to change. But so is that how people graduate to out of engineering and into like more positions of leadership or into, cause, and this is just the honest question because I, I think I, I crossed my mind. I'm like, I don't know where I fit in this organization anymore. So I think for me, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, wow. There's a lot there. Um, that you just said. Let me, and let me a impact. bit of it is like personal. So feel free to, to deflect yeah. on the personal pieces. So I think probably for me, uh, I'm not running, like I've been working on the same thing for long enough that I also feel I'm getting blind to it. So you're watching people come in with fresh eyes, right? Even if I was doing the same thing, I think I, I, I would be getting ready for like, I need a new product because I'm having a hard time even seeing defects sometimes, right? Yep. Like you yep. just... 
Yep, I get it. And uh, but in terms of the running two, I do think that happens. I'm personally, I kind of I'm excited by the different sort of problem solving, and it's a type of problem solving I haven't gotten to do in a while, mm-hmm. which is like more people based. Mm-hmm. And which I used to do, right? Like I used to be a I used to be a teacher. I used to put a a bunch of volunteering with a bunch of organizations using a bunch of process. Like I've done a lot of stuff and it's all been technical side. And I like, it'd be, it'd be fun to go back to that. So I think that running from can happen. And I think it's the wrong reason, mm-hmm. but I don't, that's not actually what I'm doing. The reason I, the, the positions I am looking at are because I'm like, I think I would like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think I would enjoy that more than my current day. Mm-hmm. Which would be a really a really cool thing, right? To like wake up more interested in what's going on. But uh, honestly, I gotta I gotta throw this out. This is how I think a lot of engineering shifting into management works. I do think some people run from it from their current job, but I also think I've definitely seen nobody else is willing to do it, and somebody has to. Mm-hmm. So there are like people who just want just want to continue working, and they. But stuff is going off the rails and somebody has to step up. Right. Which, again, is unfortunate that it's not somebody who really necessarily wants that. I think that's better. I think stepping that's a up selfless taking... act to do that. Right. Think about yeah. like what, that's a selfless act for someone to do that. And I hope that that person, if, if they're doing it, like, you know, that they see the rewards of that selfless act. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because in some cases, like, it could be like, okay, I want influence power, I want decisions, I want to do things my way. The other one's like, well, you know, in order for the rest of us to actually continue to have a job here, somebody needs to fill this role so that we can continue to move forward. Yeah. And, wow, I, you, I'm going to put my own needs aside and what I want to do for the greater good, which is the team, for the benefit of the company and the organization. I, I hope that they see it that way, too, and, you know, reward that individual. Just from my own personal experience, I've found that, I I mean, we talk about graduating from engineering, but I think it's possible to still be involved in the engineering, but also taking on other parts that are peripheral to that. So, I mean, yeah, initially when I started out, you know, pull task from Bugzilla, fix, fix bug onto next task, fix bug. Um and eventually, uh, again, you start to look into, oh, well, now I'm sort of I, I'm designing more of this stuff. And then Thanks. you start looking into, OK, how do I coordinate that schedule out to other teams? And you can still you can still be in that engineering space. You can right. still be cutting code, but you also have responsibilities outside of that where you actually have to, you know, wear a tie and talk very nicely to someone uh, who <laughs> yeah there's uh, different skills there there's different skills and i uh i i think there's i think some people end up in a sense graduating because they don't want to do the rat race of learning technology so, so we've That's all been too. this long enough now we see that yeah, technology cycles repeat, and yeah, you see hype cycles, and you see stuff that you go, God, I saw this 10 years ago. I know how this plays out, and it <laughs> does play out the exact same way. And I, I think Clayton was uh, telling me something the other day of how history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, I think some people just get sick of that, 
and whatever I manage now. <laughs> and and that's totally fair. Although I think it's also possible to still keep that engineering love in your heart and still want to work on code and stuff. And you realize that, yeah, the industry is full of hypocrisy and uh, double standards and all these things. And you still just enjoy opening GDB at the end of the day and, and checking out what's going on with the process. So yeah. you don't graduate, but you sort of grow uh, and you just keep growing and taking on things around it. Um, mm-hmm. But but not actually losing that the same thing. And, and actually, in some ways, that actually does also make you uh, stronger in some respects. So. When someone asks me, how, how can you be so sure about the schedule? It's like, well, I've written one of these before, so I, I kind of know how long it would take. Um, I forgot, David, yeah. <laughs> what role you're in. <laughs> I still think of you as like the, <laughs> the engineer who sits next to me that we can just talk about Vim stuff. And, um, and you're still that, right? I, I, and still all these shows, and you're uh, still that, yeah. Um, but, I mean, so there I, we go. Nowadays... I mean, yes, uh, like right now, okay, I'm doing my CCIE stuff, I'm learning Rust, but I also, I've just got like a whole book on, uh, books on statistics, management theory, and like, I'm hitting those too, because that allows me to keep doing the engineering stuff in some ways more effectively, because I understand where the important parts are. Uh, you know, the, the the big wins of like, oh, wow, you cut that code and now look at all the money we saved or, oh, this saved a bunch of time. Those are skills that lie outside of, you know, the core, just take the bug from Bugzilla, fix it, go to the next bug in Bugzilla. Right. So, yeah, that's that, that that's where I'm at. I, I, I'm happy to talk about a third way. <laughs> You don't have to stay strictly engineering. You don't have to go straight to management. Yeah. You, you can do both. You might go a little crazy, but um, yeah, that third but option it, but it would is, be great. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm looking to do something sort of. I mean, a different. It is a different level of the change, a, a, a chain, and a different level of of problem solving. But I think I think it's the the funny thing is, is that I think some people do run from they're sick of it, and I'm like, man, just remember that the thing you're running to isn't necessarily going to be easier. Because right. if it was, every we'd all have amazing bosses. Yeah, like yeah. our history would be littered with like <laughs> just the best bosses, and that certainly isn't true, right? Like it is a skill and it is hard. And the other thing is, that it's not permanent either, right? So you you know going into that position, you get some experience in that role. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't go back to a more technical hands-on role or individual contributor role if you find that it's not right for you. And you've also gained the level of empathy that you wouldn't have had if you weren't in that role um, and, and dealing with um, the duties of that individual. Clayton, we got to have you back because this has been such a fun. <laughs> it feels like we could go for several more hours here. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, we're, we're wrapping up this episode. Um this episode was brought to you by Sed, the command line tool. It's amazing. Use it a lot. You'll have a great time. Uh, anything so else this episode's brought to you by? I just want to throw down, I've been I've been playing with learning a bit of Latin, and I just found out Sed is Latin for like it's 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 but. Like you'll you'll use it as that connection in a sentence. And for some reason I've never said huh. is never sat in my head. I like like I don't know, yeah. Uh, 
it's like it's a scrim editor. editor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh, now, but I'm like, but. I wonder. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this reminds me of a Latin phrase that I remembered from high school: "Semper ubi sub ubi," always wear underwear. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to uh, Clayton Winslade. Um, anything you uh, care to add, Mo? Yay for FZF. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye.